Well, if you would, I'd invite you this morning to turn with me once again to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11. We're in the home stretch, I promise. We have uh, just three more weeks, Lord willing, after today before we come to the end of this study, a study that we began last fall. Going back to the very beginning of our study of the book of Zechariah, and we touched on this just briefly last week, Yahweh spoke to Zechariah, the prophet reports, with gracious and comforting words. Remember, we compared that, contrasted that with last week and, and the empty consolation that the idols give to God's people. Gracious and comforting words. That is God's heart. That is Yahweh's heart towards His people. Towards the people here in Israel that have suffered so much. There's been a generation in exile and now they've returned to a broken down city and they're seeking to rebuild. And last week we set our gaze through God's Word and through our study of chapter 10 on the all-sufficient one as we saw the fingerprints of Jesus all over chapter 10. And that chapter is a wonderful promise of restoration for God's people. And yet, in the midst of those promises of restoration, familiar patterns of sin and rebellion remain in the life of God's people. Which is part of the reason why so much of the fulfillment of these promises is delayed in the life of God's people because they're not learning. We see that again here this morning as we continue marching on through this first oracle as we've moved from the visions to the oracles as I said last week, we could take these chapters together. We're kind of taking smaller bites to help ourselves quite a bit. But we turn this morning to what is probably the most difficult chapter in the entire book. Lucky me. And by most commentators, one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Old Testament. And this is one of the predicaments that I find myself in from time to time committed to preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You get to a chapter like this and you can't, you can't just skip it. And if we believe that all of Scripture is profitable, then we really shouldn't skip it. We should press in and lean in to it. But all that to say, hold on today. <laughs> Stay with me today through this difficult chapter. We're not going to have time and I'm not going to make time to look under every rock, to look at every nook and cranny. In fact, I've tried, I've tried to make this a bit briefer in light of what I knew was going to be a report from Pastor Ed and some time praying in light of Sanctity of Life Sunday. So if you want to do more digging, I encourage more digging. Absolutely, I've got resources that can help you dig more. But even as I say all that, hear this. While there's mystery in some of the details of these things, and, and you'll see that clearly, the overall message of this passage and the person to whom it points is crystal clear. And that's where we're going to focus again this morning in Zechariah chapter 11. So, with that lengthy introduction, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word and let me read Zechariah chapter 11 verses 1 through 17. This is God's holy Word. 
Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord my God, Become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staves, one I named Favor and the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples, So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And then the Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being devoured or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Here's the good news. One truth. (laughs) One truth to guide our thinking as I try to unpack some of the craziness of what we just read. One truth for us to set our minds and hearts on this morning. It's simply this. Rejection of God's shepherd has dire consequences. Rejection of God's shepherd has dire consequences. You see, at the center of this passage is the image and the reality of the shepherd. We mentioned this last week when in the middle of chapter 10, the Lord says that his anger is hot against the shepherds. Now, who are these shepherds? These are not the shepherds watching the flocks by night. These are the spiritual leaders of God's people, right? These are those who are called to know and to lead and to feed and to guard and protect God's people through their courage, through their integrity, through their faithfulness to God's Word. 
And simply put, they were failing to do it. And so God promised in chapter 10 that He would shepherd them Himself. We saw that the ultimate fulfillment of that shepherding, of God stepping in and intervening, is Jesus, the Messiah, the Good Shepherd. Well, this morning, as we pick up where we left off last week, Yahweh speaks not only to the deficiencies of the shepherds in Israel, but He also speaks to the flock, to those who are the sheep, to you all, to those who are called to embrace and to follow the shepherds. And the language, once again, has turned dire in this book with this poetic dirge, right? This kind of funeral song in these first three verses. It begins with these three words, open your doors. It's kind of the negative counterpart to what we had last week. Last week it was ask the Lord. Well, this is the negative counterpart. Open your doors. The opportunity for asking is done. The rejection of the Lord has now exposed God's people to judgment, and it is coming. So open your doors, because here it comes. And three images are given by the prophet here in Zechariah chapter 11. Three images to illustrate this judgment that's coming. We'll work through them really quickly. First, cedars devoured by fire. You see that in verse 1? Cedars devoured by fire. Lebanon, far in the north of the land of promise, was famous for these. Right? We hear about them all the time in the Scriptures. They were immense. They were valuable. They were a matter of national pride. Solomon had brought a ton of cedar down to Jerusalem for his various building projects, not the least of which were his own personal palace and the temple of God built out of cedar. And then we hear about oaks falling to the ground, located in a particularly fertile region, the region of Bashan, north and east of the Sea of Galilee. This is, for those of you who are into modern-day geography, this is the modern-day Golan Heights. These trees were a symbol, oak trees, right, of strength and stability. And then the third image given here in these first couple verses is thicket trampled down and ruined. This described the thicket that lined the river Jordan that provided cover and habitation for predators, particularly for lions back in the day. So what does all this mean? What do these images mean and their destruction mean? It means that coming down from the north and extending through the whole region will be judgment, devastation at the hand of Yahweh. Yahweh has spoken words like this before. The symbols of national pride will be toppled. Even the lions will roar and wail at the loss of their habitat because there will be no place for even them to hide. We hear a similar word of judgment in Jeremiah 25. We don't have time to look there, but you can look there later if you'd like. While the need for judgment begins with the shepherds, what we see this morning is that it extends to those who follow them as well. Jeremiah speaks to this as well. 
Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, he says this, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their own discretion. So there you have the leaders, the shepherds leading astray. But then he says this, my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? You see, there isn't simply blame on the ungodly shepherds, though there is, but also on the people who have failed to discern, the people who have failed to call these leaders to account, the people who have failed to follow God's shepherd, the true shepherd. Now, before we move on, the question remains, like, when does all this take place? Is Zechariah giving a history lesson or is he giving a prophecy of a future yet to come as he did so powerfully just a couple chapters ago when we walked through that passage and recounted the historical account of Alexander the Great taking the coastline and fulfilling that promise, all those promises. So so what exactly is happening here? Well, here's my middle-of-the-road stance. It's both. It's both. In one sense, this could describe a number of eras in the life of God's people and in the story, God's redemptive story of saving a people and setting apart a people for himself. And so, just like last week, there may be a number of fulfillments in these words. But just like last week, this is clear. It finds its fullest and most penetrating fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, right? He is God's shepherd whom we dare not reject. And yet that's exactly what happened. Now let me explain as we move on to verse 4. My daughter has a shirt that amusingly reads, I think it's something like this. I don't know if I've gotten the quote exactly, but it's a shirt that says this, I get too emotionally attached to fictional characters. It's a great shirt. It says something about her personality, but it also speaks to the power of story, right? To the power of drama of any sort, to the power of movies and motion pictures in our day and age to convey truth and to hammer it home. And what we find in Zechariah 11 in the remainder of this chapter are two dramatic recreations written and directed by Yahweh himself with Zechariah in a starring role. We call these sign acts. Sign acts. Sign acts are these vivid means by which Yahweh sought to get His Word across to His people, to drive His point home. I guess you could say it's a step above an object lesson. It's two steps above a sermon, maybe, in terms of vividness, in terms of weight. Remember Hosea, the prophet? Sign acts. Hosea was told to marry the prostitute Gomer to illustrate the unfaithfulness of Israel. Isaiah was instructed to go and walk around naked and barefoot to symbolize judgment. And then there's Ezekiel. We won't even get into the crazy things that God asked Ezekiel to do before God's people. Crazy stuff. 
And so Zechariah obeys and he becomes a shepherd. A shepherd who clearly represents God. So Zechariah is playing God. And the flock, the one he has given instructions to tend to, is Israel. They are the ones who are doomed. Because their owners didn't care for them, neither did their shepherds. All those leaders cared about was gaining wealth through them. So Zechariah steps into this role, and he does so with two staffs. Now, staffs, shepherd's staffs, are their familiar tools of the trade, right? So he has two staffs. One he names favor, the other he names Union And those two things, favor and union, represent Yahweh's good intentions towards His people. And we'll get back to them in just a moment. And He begins to tend these sheep. And in tending these sheep, it says that He destroys three shepherds, right? Three of these worthless shepherds who are just taking advantage of God's people. And you want to know, who are the shepherds? I have no idea who the three shepherds are. And nobody else does either. Some say it's a literal group of men. Some say it's a symbolic thing, three being one of the numbers of completion. We don't know for sure. Ideas abound. Figure it out and let me know. So Zechariah is playing the role, tending God's people, favor and union in his hands. So far, so good. And then we come to the end of verse 8. I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. Uh Uh-oh. The failure of God's leaders, their willingness to follow these leaders, has led to a rejection of God and His shepherd. They detest Him. They don't want Him. And He is impatient with them. And so this devastating statement is made. Zechariah says, as he plays this part, I will not be your shepherd. It's over. It's a statement of divorce. And from this declaration, the dominoes begin to fall. Right? The staff named favor, broken. It was named to convey the way that the Lord was with His people, protecting them from their enemies around them. Now the covenant with those enemies, the Lord's restraining hands against those enemies, is taken away. Now they will have their way with God's people. They will have free access to Israel. The staff named Union is broken. The staff represented the unity of God's people, unity that was fractured into north and south after Solomon's death and continued to this day, and now it seems it won't ever be restored. And then there's this weird exchange in our passage, or attempted exchange of wages, right? 30 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver. It's not a a meaningless wage. It's not like I'll give you a dollar. It's actually a substantive wage But according to Exodus 21, verse 32, 30 pieces of silver is the price of a gored slave. 
So if you have a slave who's been gored by an ox of some sort, he's injured, not as strong as he once was, that's the value. And it's the sum that represents the value, their value, of this shepherd, Zechariah, and the role that he's playing. It's the sum that they come up with to get this shepherd out of their midst. And the Hebrew here is intense. He threw them into the house of the Lord. Like, get out of here. I don't want that. He throws this money into the house of the Lord. Why does he do that? Not quite sure. Maybe to illustrate, to speak that this will be the end of the temple activities as well. That's one of the plausible explanations for why he throws it into the temple. But then he throws it to the potter. Another illusion filled with mystery and all kinds of varied interpretations was the potter in association with the Persians. And so the fact that the potter was in the Lord's house, that was a collusion of the Persian and the enemies of God's people with the worship of God's people. You see, there's all sorts of questions. But the point is, it's over. The faithful shepherd has been rejected. The people have been given what they want, a life without him, and the consequences couldn't be any worse. So who or what is this all about? Well, as I said before, there are glimpses of fulfillment of this in Israel's history among God's people. Some have said that the shepherd here, before it pointed forward to Jesus, it pointed to Zerubbabel, the governor of God's people who was a godly governor, one such rejected shepherd in Israel, one such man whom the Lord turned their back on. The New Testament and the disciples clearly saw the words of Zechariah 11 in the plight of Jesus, their Savior. The good shepherd who was sent to a people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what did his own do to him? They rejected his words. They rejected him. And his own betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. We read these words in Matthew's account, Matthew 27, then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, and throwing the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, bought with them the potter's field as a burial for strangers. Now later, just to head off this misunderstanding, later in the same quotation, Matthew quotes Zechariah, but he attributes it to Jeremiah. And that's very confusing. Why does he do that? He's clearly quoting Zechariah 11, but he says it's Jeremiah. I think the way we understand that is God's word is not in error, but Zechariah and Jeremiah's prophecies overlap in many ways built on one another. And so when Matthew recounted for God's people what the prophet had said, he went to the more well-known prophet, which was Jeremiah, rather than quoting or rather than speaking of the lesser-known prophet of Zechariah. They rejected his words. They rejected him And Jesus mourned 
about this rejection. He cries in Matthew 23, before he is crucified, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And so back to the dramatization, Zechariah is speaking most powerfully about Jesus. But not just about Jesus, but about what is coming for God's people. About a very distinct, memorable year. The year was A.D. 70. The final destruction of Jerusalem. The violence of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 as that city was over throne. It marked the definitive divorce of Yahweh from His people following the rejection of His Son, of their Savior. Right, Verse 9 speaks of it. It was destroyed. It was absolutely destroyed. And the siege, you can see it in verse 9, was so brutal that the historian Josephus reports that those who were stuck inside as the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem resorted to cannibalism in order to save themselves. Flesh eating flesh. Rejection of God's shepherd has dire consequences. Well, the second sign act Zechariah is told is to create is verses 15 through 17, and it further adds to this abandonment. We don't have time to deep dive into it. Faithful shepherds will be replaced by foolish ones who exploit and abuse. Reject God, and you get a tyrant in his place, basically. So what does this all mean for us today? What's the takeaway? Well, we could talk about the need for faithful shepherds. Absolutely. It's a season in the life of this church calling faithful shepherds. We need them. We could talk about discernment against false shepherds. Your discernment And that too is true. We need to be discerning. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are on the internet. All over the internet. But the message behind the warning to Israel is clear. Embrace and cling to Jesus. Turn from your rebellion, your rejection of Him and His ways, the foolishness of your own hearts, the failings of the flesh, and turn to Jesus. You see, the the judgment that Zechariah 11 speaks of and all of its accompanying horrors, what are they ultimately a glimpse of? They're just a glimpse of the realities of hell. I mean, what, what is hell after all? It's the total abandonment and absence of God in our midst. People are in hell because they want no God in their lives. Just get this shepherd out of here and let me do my own thing. And then they discover, eventually they will discover that it's the worst possible scenario that they could find themselves in.
See, brothers and sisters, the abandonment of God is what Jesus felt on the cross. That's what he was experiencing when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was hell. And he cried those words for you and me so that we never have to say them, ever. All we need to do is embrace him and rejoice in the faithful one sent to the unfaithful. Cling to Jesus. That's the message. That's the reminder this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant who declares once again to our hearts and to the world that you have sent one who has been faithful. You have sent one who can be followed without reservation. You have sent one who will never leave or forsake or abuse his people. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we as a church would follow him clearly, that we would discern rightly those who are false in our midst, and that our lives would be of such rejoicing and such gratitude and such faithfulness that indeed a watching world would see and desire the one whom you sent, the one whom we follow. And so, Lord Jesus, impress these truths upon our hearts, I pray, in the name of Jesus our Good Shepherd. Amen.